0: Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. I am your host and servant in Jesus Christ, Paladin Actual, and this is my midweek-ish recap of what we covered and did not cover on the previous previous week's sermon. At the end of this episode, you'll have the recording of my sermon, so you can listen to that in detail. This week, our readings were based on the 20th Sunday after Trinity, Psalm 27, which is what I focused my sermon on, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, which I'll read to you. I'm joined by Potter Veritas, you might remember him on the channel from earlier, and Pastor Jim Hunick is that right? That's Heunick. right. <laughs> Pastor Jim Hunick. Um Heunick. excuse me, I'm going to do that on purpose, I'm going to hate a bit. So <laughs> you now have a Jewish uh, Hebrew last name, <laughs> Hewnick. I love uh, so I'm going to begin by reading by reading the gospel lesson. We can kind of go into a lot of things. Again, my sermon was mostly on Psalm 27, so there's a lot of stuff in the gospel reading uh, worth diving into. Gospel reading is from Matthew's Gospel account, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. I'm reading from ESV. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But They paid no attention and went off one to his farrow, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them with shame, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads, gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came back to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man there who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the gospel of the Lord. This is one of those uh, gospel readings that I love ending with that. This is the good news. The good news is there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And some people will be bound and thrown into the outer scotos.
1: They're cast out into the darkness. Cast out into the darkness, yeah.
0: All right. So, what jumps out to you guys on this? I, have you preached on this text someone recently, or I, I
1: haven't preached on this recently. Um, for me, I always start when I when I look at a, a text like this, and I look at the at the plot yeah. of Matthew and and back up and say, what's been going on here? And we get this uh, uh, ever increasing conflict between Jesus and and the authorities and the leaders in Jerusalem. He comes into the city. He uh, cleanses the temple. Then he curses the fig tree uh, symbolically for the fruitlessness of Jerusalem. Um, and the, the leaders uh, challenge his authority. And then he tells two parables that uh, right before this, that are all about these leaders who are unfaithful, the parable, of the two sons and the parable of the tenants. And so it's just ramping up this conflict with the religious authorities in Jerusalem uh, until he gets to this place where he once more uh, is is like pointing out the unfaithfulness of the religious leaders and how they'll be replaced,
0: yeah, the um yeah, the, the thing that jumps out to me about this text, obviously, is um how the people who were invited were respond to that. and there's other mm-hmm. there's other passages that, I think there was another parable that he tells it's very similar to this another gospel account where. I mean, he's obviously talking about the you know the people in the Old Testament. I was reading John eight recently, and it talks about uh, you know we're sons of of Abraham, right? And he says if you're sons of Abraham, you would do you know, do those good works, but then you killed all the uh, you killed all the prophets. And then Acts chapter eight, uh, Stephen's Stephen's sermon, he talks about the same thing. He calls these guys out for. Um, he calls these guys out. He says, "You know, you you uncircumcised in heart and mind, and uh, you you know, um, you resist the Holy Spirit like your fathers did before you. And how many of the prophets did you kill? Did your fathers kill? And you're proud of your heritage?"
1: I think it's even worse than that in his sermon. He's like, "Yeah, uh, uh, which of the
2: prophets did they not? Did kill? they not kill?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking that that the people, the common people, must almost wanted to even pay to see Jesus and the Pharisees. <laughs> <laughs> converse with each other. To the thought, this is going to be good.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> a- I was I was reading about the Roman Empire, as us men do, um, recently. <laughs> recently, and uh, and they were talking about uh, Cicero, and Cicero is this politician who's uh, extremely incompetent in a lot of the things that he does, and a lot of his military conquests. But he's very well known for his his oration, his oratory skills, and um, and it was. It was a, almost a form of entertainment at the time when you would have people gathered together and and you would have disputations, even even court cases. So Cicero wasn't a lawyer in the sense that we would understand a lawyer, but in the sense of somebody who is famous for arguing cases because he's entertaining and he could stir up the crowds and stuff like that. So so absolutely, I could see confrontations like this being pinnacle entertainment.
2: I think what struck me about this this gospel um, and really this this whole set of, of bricabees and, and proper's uh, is. Not even that Jesus is well. First thing that strikes me about it is is that it ends on the note that you mentioned. Oh. This is not a gospel for the for the faint hearted. Um, if if you're going to read this, if you're going to preach this, if you're going to share this correctly, you're going to have to share hell, because the result of uh, what we're going to get into here of of, of rejecting uh, Jesus basically is. Is to put to put it in the most positive way, there's no place for you mm-hmm. in the kingdom of God, which means that you're in hell. People people ask me all the time, you know, what do you have to do to get into hell? You know,
0: <laughs> I, I've, heard, I've heard the the Bible. You know, what do what, what do you have to do to inherit mean, eternal life? But what do you have to do to get into hell? What, what is it, is it?
1: What, don't worry, uh, you've already done it. you how <laughs> oh, bad you
2: you have to yeah. do is rege- you know you have to reject the gift that Jesus is giving you you know that's i mean it's not how bad are you you know we're all bad enough to get into hell it's there's Jesus already bought and paid for the way out of hell but mm-hmm. if you want to hang on to uh to how quote unquote good you think you are um and you're not going to let go of that you will wind up in hell um, and yeah. Isaiah puts it well, you know, all of, our filth, all of our good deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. Um, there's not a single thing that, that we can vest ourselves with, not even the most uh, glorious liturgical vestments that will get us into the kingdom of heaven, you know, that anything that, that we make of ourselves, and it certainly goes for our works as well. So so that's where I see all of the, 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 the dynamic we, and, and all of the proverbs for today is this, yeah. We can bring something to the table, and we will never eat at the table. Uh But if we receive, which and you want to be careful here, because we don't want to become um, uh, popular American, you know, Christianity here. Uh, This is not something that we do to receive the gift from God to to receive the invitation uh, to receive the food at the table. One must be bound to be righteous and that so there is the other question that isn't being asked what, what is it how is one and, and and in the language of the text you know many are invited but few are chosen well how is one chosen then and we all think it's by something that we do
0: well, you think about, there's something
2: else that God chooses us on.
0: Yeah, did, did in the parable, did Jesus invite, well, I mean, to a degree he did. Did he invite, you would think, you know, if you've got the royal wedding, you invite all the famous people, you invite Oprah and you invite Every. the queen. Yeah. <laughs> you invite the people who have earned that status. But, well, you no, know, first he does invite well, some, first a certain.
2: as in as in order, but right, not, right. not as an exclusive. Right,
0: right. So if first he does invite people who are specifically chosen for one dint or another. Um, but then he invites, of course, all, all, but all the- But why were they chosen?
2: Are... Why were the Jews chosen first? What was the purpose of their being chosen? What, what, were they chosen as a result of something they did, or were they chosen at, uh, because God wanted to do something with
1: them? I mean, if you, lots of people will go back and look at Abraham and say, what a great guy, what, how amazing was he. And But of course, if you read his life, He was not amazing in any way. It was pretty, it's pretty terrible. Uh, He was, he was a horrible man Um, up until he finds a time where he, he learns through God's faithfulness that he is, he can trust those promises. And so the choice is really God's action. Right. For for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the rest of the family. Yeah. The the choice Mm -hmm. is God is choosing.
2: First of all, so so, and it's it's put in the passive there, chosen to be chosen, not to choose to be chosen. It's 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 passive, which means somebody else is doing it to you, and then you have to ask the question: Well, why is he chosen? What did he do to be chosen? And then we're slipping back into <laughs> that, you know, that, that what, what, how have I made
0: myself this. worthy of God's attention? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know. The, that, I'm fascinated with this question that you had, because again, I mean, again, I I always have that question, the question of the lawyer who says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this, this question that you asked about what must I do to be sent to hell? And this presupposes the security that the person says, well, I'm good enough on my own to deserve heaven, unless I do something to deserve hell. And, you know, and I think about this, uh, you were talking about this before is somebody coming to the wedding feast in their own garments. What I have naturally is good enough, right? Can't God accept me where I am, who I am? Uh, I just have to do something especially bad to be kicked out of the wedding feast. But that's not what the parable says at all. So, how, what do you make of the garment of uh, the uh, the wedding garment? What is what is being said here by by being clothed in a wedding garment, and that this this guy doesn't have one?
2: Well, the, the, I mean, historically, theologically, there are two different things going on historically, but it ties nicely with the theology. Historically, when a rich man threw a wedding, he provided the 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 wedding the wedding garment. In fact, they're, they're in you know in the Greek it, it talks about specifically the wedding clothes. Uh-huh. So there were clothes, and and we were in Chinatown yesterday, uh-huh. and Chip was pointing out, you know, this is this <laughs> is the wedding dress for this region. This is what they wear. They just don't wear anything. They wear this specific dress this specific color this pattern that is the wedding dress for them. so they're in the same way you're talking about the far east there now we're talking about the near east with with jesus and and his culture um they have wedding a wedding dress a, a wedding vestment that you wear to the wedding and and by the in the rich weddings it was provided by the one who gave the wedding in this case the king which there, there's also something great in, in the parable, if, if we have time to get to it, about, you know, who are all these people in the parable and why are they who they are? But um, so so historically, you wear what is given to you. Uh-huh. You don't presume to come in and wear the wrong clothes at the wedding, wedding. So that's that's number one. And then theologically, that makes great sense, because what is given to us is much better. Than anything we could bring in, it's it's the difference between uh, coming to the wedding as as we are, filthy, stinking, rotten, putrid. You know, flies coming up from us. We need to we need to be another, a passive again. We need to be brought in by the slave, the douloi, of of the of the king. We need to have our clothes nasty, nasty clothes. You remember, well, these are people
0: coming in from the street. Right.
2: This you, is you, the you remember from the well, street, and the yeah. thing to remember here is even even the Jews, from God's point of view, are people from the street. You you remember in, in our church in Ontario mm-hmm. when you were when you're a young kid, remember the people that I let live next door to the church in the in the in that in the in that the, the, the trailer there because they had no home? You remember what they smelled like? Yeah. <laughs> it was do, yeah. terrible. It was terrible. So to come to, to come into the wedding feast, that's that's what that's what oh. we smell like with our sin. We need to be n- not only deloused, but sprayed with a, you know a, a, uh, <laughs> <Cologne>. antiseptic <laughs> and and everything else. Washed, clean, baptism—you know that comes to mind. Clothed uh, with Christ, clothed with Christ, with Christ yeah. clothed with wedding garment. All these things. You you not only do you, not only is it is it right? You're invited to come in. You should. You should dress well. Well, you haven't got good enough to dress in and you stink to high heaven. Um, uh, but all I forget where it's going. But, but <laughs> it, it's it's just it's it, it, the difference it's between me. outside and inside the kingdom is is so great and so horrible um, that, that God is willing to to um, to provide for us. Oh, that's that's it. That which we need to enter because. It is impossible for us to enter in without it. If you don't come in with a wedding garment, you can't get in for a number of reasons. Uh, One, it's it's kind of almost like the price. It is the price of admission. But two, in in the kingdom of heaven, anything less than that is, is not tolerated. God, God's presence, there's will, a dress code, uh, mm-hmm. will, it will <laughs> yeah. obliterate it. Like, 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 like an atomic bomb, you know, it just, it just will not, it will not stand up.
1: And I think it's a key distinction. Um, when we look at the guy without the wedding garment, just note that it's not about him. It's about the garment because right before that, uh, Jesus says, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. And so it's not like this guy is didn't get a wedding garment because he was a bad guy. <laughs> um, it's there are the guests are all sorts of people from every walk of life and the they're in not because they're good or bad but simply because they've got the garment. They were invited and they right. And so this this guest who comes in without the wedding garment tried to get in some other way than through the invitation.
0: Well, I wonder I, right, so, um, and the guy, the goddess the garment. Well, so that, that's the question is which, which was it? Did he come in without an invitation or did he receive an invitation and he decided to come in in his own clothes anyway? Uh, and I think re- that's it. And we're regard- and that's, that's well, cause I mean, you think you've got the people who are invited. Then he says, go out in the streets and invite everyone. So I would presume that, that this guy was anyway, at least one of these two groups, um, I looked up, I was just looking at the Greek word poneros, because there's, you know, different words for bad and good. And one of them is kind of like ugly and, 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 and versus beautiful. And one of them is, is evil versus virtuous. And this is, this is evil. It looks like, I think that's what the poneros. Uh, so I guess yeah. what I mean,
1: when I'm talking about the, the process of the invitation is that you can only accept the invitation by taking the wedding.
0: clothes. It's part and parcel. It's, yeah. It's,
1: yeah. The, the invitation includes having the wedding clothes and going through what the, the king's invitation does not include coming on your own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Without the wedding garment.
0: Well, we do this in the West too, when you've got a party or something like that, and you say, okay, well, what's what's the attire? Well, we, it's business attire. It's business casual, it's you know, it's white tights, black tie events. Mm-hmm. And maybe we've lost some of that as a society. We dress, you know, yeah, there's more uh, more casualness to the clothing, but but at least in Western society traditionally, if you're going to a ball or a banquet, oh you you are not getting in with Flip flops and a T-shirt. I mean, if it's if it's a white, I, I was watching. uh you ever Green seen Ball. this? Yeah. Well, if you've ever seen the, have you ever seen the show *Downton Abbey*? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a, I, I watched it start to finish. I don't know why, but. <laughs> It was everybody was so prime and proper, and but there was all of this thing about it was scandalous. When the master of the house came down, he was wearing a black bow tie during a white tie event, and it was, it was his white tie was dirty. It's something he had some excuse, but he was so ashamed that he showed up at this at this function in a black tie and a white tie event, which is I guess one layer higher. Uh, but it, it meant something there. Um, I know for um, yeah, the Gottesman guys when they looked at when I think in that podcast when they were talking about this is is they said that he showed up as a um, to, to gawk, not to participate, but as an observer. Uh, and was, we we're talking about the people having a conversation, Jesus and the Pharisees, and people just kind of standing by and observing rather than participating. And yeah, part of the invitation, the invitation is not show up and observe this, but it's show up and be part of the wedding party. So if you're a groomsman, or if you're a best man, or if you're a bridesmaid, presumably you're supposed to wear a dress and you have a function to do, whether it's to stand up here on the line or the ring bearer or whatever, give a speech. But I think that's I think that's a good point. For the invitation, you're accepting an invitation not to show up, but to show up and participate. And here are your roles and duties, and by the way, your dress
1: code. So I, I do worry a little bit about trying to impute motives mm-hmm. to a guest in one of Jesus's <laughs> parables, because yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't say. say that. That's yeah. Um, the emphasis really is on he's got a garment, right, or he doesn't there's he no of anything like there's no friend you're not wearing a garment and you didn't stand up with the wedding party yeah. or because once you start doing that we're starting to get into into the man and the quality of his actions again and so, and Jesus doesn't doesn't say anything about that he just says where is your wedding garment
2: that, that's the key there that's that's the whole thing how what do I what do I have to do rephrase it you know what is necessary yeah, what is although, required
0: of what me is to be at this in wedding? in
2: order to be at the wedding feast or in order to be cast out mm-hmm. in order to be cast out what is necessary is to be clothed in your own clothing your own to to the to the leaders your own righteousness
0: or really to it's, be clothed in anything except for the wedding army. yeah yeah anything it, yeah.
2: well it so you that's say true. worshiping a false I mean, god or something. Yeah, following yeah, the theme that's going along here, though, in this context, Jesus is constantly addressing what they believe to be their own righteousness. Yeah. And then he's showing, he's going back to Isaiah, he's showing what their own righteousness is worth. Uh, on the other hand, in, you know, I I, I presume to, to think that if this were written in English at the time, that go out and invite people both the good and the evil would have been in quotes because that's really f- referring to our measure of good and evil not God's.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And and uh you know which, which again, gets this whole thing that Jesus is trying to 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 explain here. So you know I th- for me the
1: we tend to focus a whole lot on that part where they cast the guy into the outer <laughs> darkness because we're like, oh no. Yeah. And I think the,
0: the They're gonna tie him up first, the, which seems excessive. Yeah. But he's not gonna do well even without And
1: right. we get this uh, this sort of like, oh no, what do I do? How do I get my How do wedding I garment? Yeah. And there's sort of a moment of panic. I think the scandalous thing about this parable though, is that it's the that Jesus is speaking to the people who think they've got it in the bag. Mm-hmm. Like it's the the leaders, the the high priests. I'll be good with the the garment I have. I yeah. yeah, and and they're the ones who are are the like the people. Who respect them as the leaders of their religion. They're the authorities. They're the smart guys, and they're the ones who say no. Yeah, to the invitation. Yeah, and then the king goes and destroys those murderers and burns their city. We just sort of like, oh yeah let's forget yeah, about that
0: part you, you know which is better to be it to had to be destroyed and have your city burn or to be tied up and thrown into the into the scottos um,
1: <laughs> and then i think uh when we read this parable we tend to fixate on that like oh no what if i don't have my wedding garment but i think the for the people in the church it's it's more to we should more think about are we more like the pharisees here respectable but when the invitation comes are we too busy mm-hmm. well, I,
2: yeah, that's, there's that. I think there's also this, too. I, when I was considering this, I'm thinking Walter is going to raise out of his grave and he's going to smack me. <laughs> you know, kind of like <laughs> when, when Gibbs smacks whatever Tony's back, of Tony's head, you know, you got yeah. it wrong. Um, but here's a parable that I think stands as not only as first use of the law, but also as third use of the law and also as gospel. Um. You know, first use of the law is is to be without the garment is to be cast into darkness is 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 you know hell that's where you go, um and and too bad for you it it is really too bad because according to the gospel, uh, the king has prepared this what he is it, it says there he has done everything. So then we go right to, to life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything has been done. Everything is repaired, and everybody is invited. That is pure gospel. And then it's third use of the law for, for, for us, and this is what you're getting to, in, in that we have been given the wedding garment. We are not only invited, we are now participating in a foretaste of this great feast to come, so as as 30th law, it serves as a warning for us to cling to that which has been given to us. Because unlike some Christians, we believe that we can lose this if we suddenly start to look back like Lot's wife and think, you know, that wasn't so bad. Or maybe I don't like
0: looking like everybody else around here. I had a pretty, you know, I, I'm, I'm all of us Christians clothed with the same white robe. You know what? Maybe I want to stand out a little bit and you know make. I want to be my true self a little bit and i think that maybe that can be a a more modern temptation but yeah what what
2: what if what if of god's message to me do i want to disregard in order to be unique i mean that's that's been this this, the hallmark of the 60s and has gone (laughs) gone, uh, on on into this new new century and millennia as well in different ways and everybody looks the same but, but, but. Yeah,
0: Jesus and or Jesus, but where you've got the wedding garment, but you want to cut off the sleeves to you know, show <laughs> off the
2: tattoo. Yeah. So, and, and how, you know, how, how many ways do we cut off? Do we modify the garment, you know, with our, with our own dress? You know, uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus will, uh, Jesus loves me and, and I'm glad for his forgiveness, uh, except for that part about homosexuality, because I'm going to embrace my homosexuality because my Jesus made me this way.
0: My white robe
2: would look better tie dye.
0: So, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, it's no, not the not same garment.
2: tie dye. That's <laughs> me. Rainbow.
0: Whatever. Rainbow. <laughs> all y'all are Anybody, yeah, know, you all know, those hippies If you're not
2: wearing white or black, <laughs> and,
0: you are in the wrong. And,
2: and, I don't, and I don't mean to. And I don't mean to make homosexual the big sin. It's we all sin. We all struggle with temptations to to individualize ourselves and raise up ourselves in our own righteousness and say God made me this way, whatever this way is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I think the third law here is saying, God has given you a gift that, that is incomparable and, and, and cannot be replaced. Don't mm-hmm. let go of it, hang on to it. And if we bring it back to, again, this conflict with the
1: Pharisees and the temple authorities and all of that, this isn't, this isn't a, a discussion that's going about the outcast peoples. The, he's talking to the people who are members of the church, who are doing the right thing, who look good, if we wanted to put it into our terms, it's the Christians who are in church or who look like the powerful ones, who look like the wise ones, who, who just might have other priorities that are, they're not the obvious sinners.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're the good people. Yeah.
1: I think that's a, an important thing to note as well.
0: Yeah, let's, uh, let's wrap this up here. Uh, I, I had fun doing this. Um, this speaking right now, this is Pallon. In actual, I've been joined by Pastor Jim Hunick and uh, Pastor Veritas. Uh, we've been talking about Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Please continue to listen if you want to hear my sermon, which has very little to do with that and everything to do with Psalm 27. Uh, God bless you. Enjoy and take care. Grace, mercy, and peace be on you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text for the sermon this morning is from all of the readings which you have just heard, particularly the epistle reading and the psalm. The epistle reading tells us this. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. The days are evil. Now, this is a phrase that got stuck in my head for a while, and I've been mulling it over for a bit. And... What I've concluded is that there are two possible things that this phrase could mean. And both of them definitely seem true, so I think it's good to consider both of them. After all, both have the same conclusion, that the days are evil, therefore we should trust in God. That he has a plan, and he has done all the work to save us both now and in eternity. The days are evil, but God is good. The days are evil. Paul says this phrase... Then goes on to write about how Christians should go about living, how they should live their daily life, not foolishly, but with love for one another, and obviously with love for God. Now, this definitely sounds like Paul is talking about how common sin is in the world. Days are evil. You'll be tempted to sin very easily and commonly. Christians are not called to sin, but to love, and in our society, we are surrounded with temptation. We are surrounded by calls and expectations to sin. And Paul is warning his brothers and sisters to keep their guard up. Be careful. The days are evil, and they will want to make you evil too. The days days are evil. Now, this phrase could be a warning against falling into sin, absolutely. But it could also be a warning about the sin and the consequences of sin already present in the world. So probably everybody's forgotten by now, but a few months back, Russia and Ukraine went to war. Now, apparently that war is still going on. In this war, unfortunately and tragically, many people have been hurt or killed, either directly or indirectly, as a result of the conflict and as a result of sin in the world. Since then, many other things have happened. Many other disasters have happened. There have been deadly wildfires in Hawaii. There have been storms. And now there's another war. In the Middle East, with thousands dead already, no sign of stopping or slowing down. In fact, the fear is that escalation may happen, that there may be even more war. One might even say that there are wars and rumors of wars going on right now. The day is indeed evil. The day is indeed evil when Christians and all people have to fear for their life. That is an evil day when you have to worry about your well-being, when you have to worry about your family, and when you have to worry about their future. This is not the life that God intended for you. This is not the life that God intended for the world. When He made the Garden of Eden, excuse me, When He made the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. This is the result of their sin, being in the world. It is not the garden that He made. It is the garden that was corrupted by their sin. So either way, the day is evil, either because the world will try to make you sin and try to make you. Cooperate with sin, be complicit in sin, or overlook sin, or the day is evil because the world is so damaged by sin that suffering is at the front door of every person. Whichever interpretation you pick, it can be easy to see the evil of the day and be tempted to despair. If the day is evil, and every day is evil, then what what hope can we have? It seems like things are getting worse and worse every day, more and more sin, more and more suffering. How bad could it possibly get? The psalm for today deals with this exact feeling, this feeling of being surrounded by enemies and suffering. The day is evil, this feeling that the day is evil, that there are evil people in the world all around. But David's conclusion to this is not to despair. David's conclusion to the presence of evil is not to give up hope but to laugh at it. To laugh at it and insult it. Psalm 27 begins not with fear. If this was talking about the day being evil and the result was you should despair, you should expect something like, oh Lord, the day is evil and all hope is lost and I should just weep. The end, amen. (laughs) But that's not how this psalm goes. Psalm 27 begins not with fear, but with boldness and, dare I say, arrogance. Pride, not in himself, but in God. Righteous arrogance. My dad can beat up your dad. My God can beat up your God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's a rhetorical question. It's an insult. The world is a scary place, David says, not just for the believer, but the the world is full of darkness. But darkness is only terrifying if you don't have a light. God is our light and our salvation, our stronghold. stronghold. One might say our mighty fortress. What are we supposed to be afraid of? Now, darkness is terrifying. It's one of the most common fears, whether you're a child or an adult, and you have to go downstairs and get a glass of orange juice, but you don't want to turn on the light. you, you, you got to run before the monsters catch you, before you get back to the stairs. There's all kinds of spooky things that happen in the darkness. Darkness is scary. Darkness is terrifying. But what happens to darkness in the presence of light? What happens if you walk into a dark, scary room and you flick the light switch? How scary is the darkness then when all the lights are on? How powerful is the darkness then when all the lights are on? The darkness vanishes. There's no struggle. There's no darkness versus the light, and they're pushing themselves back and forth, and oh no, who will win in the end, the darkness or the light? It's not even a context. The mere presence of light means that light wins every time, guaranteed. Light overcomes darkness, and darkness is helpless to push back. Darkness cannot resist light. As terrifying as a pitch-black room is, the moment you you add a couple of floodlights, the darkness flees. There is no place for it. It cannot be present with light. The darkest room is instantly overpowered by a light bulb. How much more is the darkness of the world overpowered by the light of Christ? The Lord is your light and your salvation. What shadow could you fear with such a bright light? A light so bright that Moses coming off the mountain had that light glowing off him for days. A light that bright. What shadow can stand against a light that bright? The days are evil, but God is good. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This is also what David writes. Now, as it stands, not too many people build castles anymore. It's a tragedy. But back in the day when they did, when you were building a castle, a fortress... The goal was to build a stronghold. If someone built a stronghold properly, it could withstand anything the enemies throw against it. Now, if you've ever watched any movies of medieval warfare or you know whatever, castles are often attacked by battering rams and catapults and all these things designed to try to take down these walls. And over the course of the day, of course, in the movie, in the course of a single day, the castle is overrun. Now, in actual military history, that never happens. That never happens. If a stronghold was built right, and nobody opened the door and let the enemies in, in a Trojan horse, for example, if the stronghold was built properly, it was so effective it wasn't worth attacking. What could you do against a stronghold? Indeed, if somebody wanted to conquer a stronghold, they would have to lay siege against it. This didn't mean knocking down the walls. You couldn't do it. Try as hard as you can. You couldn't knock down the walls but you would surround the castle and wait, and hopefully the people inside would run out of food and water. Now, this is a problem if they had wells inside and they had some sort of some sort of food inside, but hopefully you would, you would be able to wait them out, and this would mean waiting for years. If you're familiar with the Trojan War, in theory that took 10 years to lay siege to Troy, 10 years of waiting for people to starve because you couldn't overpower the wall. Now, any enemy foolish foolish enough to try to outright attack a mighty fortress would, at best, imagine a soldier says, I'm going to take on that castle over there because I'm such a big, bad soldier. I'm such a big, bad enemy, and who cares about a castle? I'm going to take it. At best, he would run face first into a wall and bounce off. Best case scenario for him, he survives with a broken nose. And at worst, if an enemy attacked a castle, they would suffer terrible losses in the assault and gain nothing. If you throw thousands of men against a wall that doesn't fall down, all that happens is you get a bunch of rocks and hot oil that dropped on your men, and the rest of you that survive go home. You accomplish nothing. The wall is still there. The fortress is still strong. The stronghold still stands. Now, if a mighty fortress built by even human hands, fallible humans made of rocks and wood, if a fortress like that could stand so triumphantly against an entire army, how much better will the rock of our salvation stand against the enemy? A rock that's not divided like walls with seams between the bricks, but a solid rock upon which we build our life. The days are evil, but God is good. David admits that there are enemies out there. He's not saying, just close your eyes, there's nothing to worry about. No, there are enemies out there. There are enemies of Christians out there. But they are nothing against the love and the might of God who cares for you protects you david writes this he writes about the battle and the foolish battle of darkness against light when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh my adversaries and foes it is they who stumble and fall again think of the soldier trying to attack a stone castle by running face first into the wall it's not the wall that falls down it's the enemy who stumbles and falls David continues, though an enemy encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though a war arise against me, yet will I be confident. Now again, if you are within the sturdy walls of a mighty fortress, why should you care about those soldiers outside in tents who can't possibly break in? They can be as evil and as nasty as they want to. As menacing, they can say the worst things against you. They can shake their swords and rattle their shields. They can't get through the wall, so so what? So what? Why would I be afraid of someone who can't touch me? As long as you have enough food, as long as you have enough food, you can last forever. Now since God is the living water and the bread of life, even that isn't something to be afraid of. You're never going to starve in the presence of God. You're never going to be thirsty again. He promises this to the woman at the well, and he promises this to you. So you've got all the food you could ever want, you've got all the water you could ever want, and you're in an impenetrable fortress with all the time in the world. The psalm continues as David rejoices in his Lord, our God, God who will protect us, take care of us, feed us, love us, and be there with us through all the hardships of life. So yes, the days are evil, but God is good. Repent of your sins, be forgiven, and live in the peace of life with God. The days may get more and more evil. The darkness may grow and grow. The enemy army might get more and more wicked and fierce. But you have no reason to be afraid. He that lived for you, died for you, and rose for you, watches over you now and forever. What is the creeping darkness to the brightest light? What is the most fearsome soldier to the mightiest fortress? What is the evil day? to the good God. The Lord is my light and my salvation, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Whom shall I fear? No one. Nothing. And now that peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.